Welcome to What Didn't Kill You, where we explore personal and professional stories of adaptation in the face of adversity and the causal relationship between pain and growth. I'm your host, Michael Silverman. I'm an entrepreneur, investor, and student of life that is fascinated by how professional missteps, adverse life circumstances, and pain are harnessed by people and organizations to inform future triumphs and bring deeper meaning to their life and work. Join me as we explore the mindsets, philosophies, and narratives of those who embody Friedrich Nietzsche's timeless aphorism, what does not kill me makes me stronger. Esther Lee Leach. Hello, hello. Welcome to my living room. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for having me. This is kind of nerve-wracking. I'm usually the one asking the questions. Yeah, yeah. I've, and I've seen you in action. There's a, a <laughs> lot of uh, a lot of cool videos of you out there, but yeah. it's nice to do an in-person conversation for once. And exactly. It's, uh, the coronavirus shut everything down. Yeah. Well, thank you for coming to my home and joining my podcast on another episode of uh, What Didn't Kill You. Would love to just dive in and get started with your background because you have such a fascinating background. How did you get started in modeling, in fashion, uh, growing up in St. Lucia? Oh my God, where do I even start? It's a long story. So I started modeling when I was 14. I've always been interested in fashion and movement and dance. So I started doing that. And then at the same time, my sister and I wanted to be Oprah. So we, we decided at 14 and she was 16 that we were going to have a TV show. Like we were going to have it. And my mom is a type of person who, if we say now we want to fly to the moon, she'll be like, that's a great idea. How can I help you? So we just started planning. We decided what we wanted to do. And two years after we started planning, we had our first TV show on the air. So that's how we started. And in St. Lucia, it wasn't usual to have like women doing like behind the camera and producing and even young women. So we would show up on set and people would ask, where's your boss? And we would just like kill ourselves like laughing because like we're the boss, we're planning everything. And that was how I started like in the industry. That's amazing. So was that Access Caribbean? Was that the first? It was Access Caribbean. Okay. Was it? No, we had one before called Vibe Central. Okay. <laughs> so it was this like magazine type TV show where we would have a fashion segment. We would have just like a dining segment, a music segment, just all the different types of things. It was just like a show targeted to teenagers. And that was kind of never done before in our market in St. Lucia in the Caribbean. And it really, really took off because we were teenagers talking to other teenagers and talking in their language. And people just loved the show. So after that, we did Access Caribbean, which was like a travel and tourism show. Very cool. And so these were really independently produced and then got picked up? Yeah, or exactly. How did that work? So completely independently produced. We did everything from the concept to shooting, editing, to looking for advertisers. So in St. Lucia, how it works is that you buy the airtime. I'm not too sure how it is now, but you buy your airtime, you fill it with as many advertisers as you want, and then the TV show plays it. Oh, wow. Yeah, it's a whole different concept. Interesting. So it's you had to go find your own advertisers to basically support the the purchase of airtime. So we were also salespeople. Interesting. (laughs) But it was a really good learning ground because you learn to do every single thing yourself. So my sister was the one behind the camera producing. I was the one hosting. We were making the sales calls and the sales meetings, but you really learn how to do all the grunt work. So now I can, I can do anything when it comes to production because I learned from such a young age. That's so cool. How long were you guys doing that for? My gosh, for four years. Yeah. 
And that was that. all under the guise of Lee Productions, is that exactly, right? Exactly, okay. exactly. Our own company, Lee Productions, Inc. That's so cool. <laughs> and you were how old when you guys started? We started planning when I was 14. Wow. And at that age, you have a sort of self-belief that like nothing can stop you and Somebody might say that won't work and you're like, oh, of course it will. There's no like thinking that this isn't possible. And it's the kind of attitude that I try to keep today is like this childlike magic about what can happen in life. Like, why not? That's awesome. I think that's something that so many people struggle with. Even entrepreneurs or people that go out and accomplish a lot, you always have that inner narrative, that that nagging voice in your head that tells you, ah, this is stupid or don't do it. And it's amazing if you can just override it. I know, um, I know. What what can be accomplished. Yeah, I try to keep that enthusiasm because when I do, it sort of like drives you to do stuff. So we learn very early on, like if we do not pick up the phone to call somebody, if we don't write a letter in those times... (laughs) actually writing letters. If we don't send an email now, like nothing is going to happen for your company. It's all in your hands. And there's such like power in understanding that you drive the narrative forward. It's quite exciting. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it might not work out, but it definitely (laughs) won't work out if you stay at home. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. exactly. Yeah. And so what were the biggest challenges in in getting started and something like that? In that time is making people sort of understand a new concept because there weren't any local shows besides the news during that time. It was just the news was very serious. People weren't used to like locally produced, like fun shows. So us as teenagers talking to executives of companies with marketing budgets saying, give us your money. (laughs) We're going to produce this amazing show. We're going to get your ads in there. It was a challenge making them understand the whole new concept. But when they did, it it just took off. Was there a, a model at the time for what you guys were going for? There wasn't okay. at all. I think now they're more sort of like entertainment shows like E! and stuff like that. But it wasn't even that. It was just, it was really different. We just came up with the ideas that like what we wanted to do and what we wanted to see on TV you got access to some uh, some pretty cool folks. I've we seen. did. We did. I remember early on, we we interviewed like Chris Brown or something and Ray J and Beanie Man, Sean Paul. It was, it's a lot of fun. Yeah. I saw yeah. Shaggy one in Shaggy. there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's so cool. And so yeah. did you just reach out to their, their publicists or their groups? We did. We okay. did that. And we also went to a lot of music festivals where you could get press access to them. Nice. Which made it really easy. Yes. Yeah, so that's a nice perk. Yeah, exactly. Did you start pursuing fashion and modeling around the same time? So uh, around that time, I was still modeling. And then I also started working at a newspaper called the Mirror Newspaper. And I started writing about like current events and politics and everyday stuff. And I realized I wanted to do something more interesting and more exciting. So I started writing fashion columns for them. And I also started writing a love column, <laughs> dating <laughs> column called the Love Chronicles of Esther Lee. <laughs> That's amazing. And you can imagine at that time on a small island how much trouble you get into writing about your dating life. It was a must read. I started a blog at the time for the column. And when that's when blogs were just starting and people would write like little secret notes to me telling me this happened to me or what are you talking (laughs) about? I think I know. But I started doing that. And then I got recruited by a magazine called She Caribbean. And it's kind of thought of as the Vogue of the Caribbean and it's based in St. Lucia. So that was really exciting. I started assisting the publisher, May Wayne there. And then I moved to being a staff writer. And then I was made like the senior fashion editor where I started to go to shows around the world to cover fashion weeks for the magazine, doing a lot of writing, a lot of styling, a lot of production. So that was really exciting. So I kept sort of doing the TV show and the magazine work at the same time. Did they help each other? 
They did very much. They did. Yeah. That's so cool. Yeah. So at some point you left St. Lucia. How did that evolve? And did you, did you stay active in producing content in the fashion world? So after, I think, a few years of working for the magazine, I just felt like it wasn't enough for me. St. Lucia is a very, very small island. I absolutely love it. But when you're young, you sort of need more. You need to see more. You kind of want to step outside your door without like 10 people stopping you to ask how your mom is yeah. doing. That's sort of <laughs> really, if you grew up in a small town, you know what I mean. So I looked up what are the best fashion schools in the world. And I found the London College of Fashion, which is a part of University of the Arts London. And all the best journalists went there. All the best designers like McQueen went to Central St. Martin, which is a sister university. So I thought, well, this is a place for me. (laughs) And I I always have this attitude of like, why not? I'm going to do this. So I applied. I got and I did like a first sort of foundation level. And after the first year in London, I had to apply for the bachelor's program And I thought, well, I have all this experience writing already. I'm going to apply for the master's program. So I applied for the master's program. People thought I was crazy, but I got in. So they told me like the bachelor's program would be too like basic level for me. I know everything already. So I just kind of hopped over the bachelor's degree (laughs) and got my master's in London. That's awesome. Yeah. Again, just getting up in the morning and believing in yourself goes a long way. Exactly. Exactly. And so you moved from St. Lucia to London. Yes. And how long did you live in London for? For about two and a half years. And did you continue with She as you went to school? So when I moved there, I covered like London Fashion Week for them, which was just an amazing experience. Like you walk in to a building and if I think it was a Somerset house at the time, Fashion Week, and you're handed champagne at 10 a.m., there are the club kids there, all the socialites there, all the fashion people, and it is the most incredible experience. London has a sort of freedom that New York doesn't have. Like designers are very experimental there. They try new things there. It's more about creativity there versus business. Like New York, it's all business. Nobody wants to be brave and try something new. But in London, you're encouraged to be different, try something new. So it was like an eye-opening experience for me and just like learning how to be super creative and just kind of doing whatever you want, which really fits my personality. How long did you stay in the school and did you did you stay in London so about afterwards? about two and a half years. Okay. So at the end of my degree program, I met a British man. <laughs> <laughs> this is so cheesy. I met him on the train platform at the Notting Hill station. This is how cheesy it's like it is. like a movie. <laughs> I know it is, Notting Hill. So yeah, I met him there. And after months of dating, he got a work opportunity to move to New York for three months. And he's like, well, you're done with your thesis. Why don't you just move with me? And the magazine said, well, go cover New York Fashion Week for us. So I was like, yes, let's Perfect. go. So we moved for three months. I worked for the magazine, going back and forth to St. Lucia as well, shooting there. And at the end of three months, they said, can you guys stay for a year? And we said, yes. Well, that was 10 years ago. <laughs> <laughs> So we never leave the U.S. We're now citizens and this is home for us. And after New York, we moved to San Francisco and then Denver. And this has been home for us for five years. And did you continue producing content during that stretch of time? I know you've got a new venture right now. I did. I worked for the magazine a lot. But when I came to Denver, I couldn't go back to St. Lucia, like back and forth so much because I got pregnant. So I decided to take some time off, which I don't think was a good idea. (laughs) So I got a new house. I had a baby. 
And I took two and a half years off and I kind of went half crazy because I love being busy and being at home, being isolated with a new child is so, so difficult. And you kind of lose your identity because you're not doing what you love anymore. You're simply taking care of this little baby. So that was kind of like a hard time for me. Going through that process, I mean, you're a person that does, just gets up and does things, yes. right? How do you get through that? What's what's sort of that inner narrative that you... Uh, that you focus on? For a while, I I did lose my identity because I wasn't kind of being myself. But you just sort of have to remind yourself of who you are and what you can do. So I remember after the first year, I got this notebook out. I'm a big like writing a notebook person. (laughs) So I got this notebook out and I just sort of wrote the things I did before and sort of my identity and who I was and what I love to do. And during the next year, I kind of went back to that book And just like reminded myself of who I was going through that time. And after two and a half years, I said, well, this is it. (laughs) He needs to go to school now. (laughs) Put him in school full time and I need to get back to work. And that was it. What is it about the producing of content, the exploration of fashion and creativity? How does that tie into your identity? Because I love like the possibility of anything, like having a blank sheet of paper because I write a lot having like a camera to the the ready just to produce something that you came up with. Like it's not in the world yet. It's not out there. You decide that you want to put it out there and you're going to come up with that idea. Like there's so much power in that. Like, what am I going to write today? Oh, this is it. I'm going to put it out there and people are going to actually digest what I decided to create. It's really exciting. That's awesome. It's, uh, It's so much sort of that entrepreneurial spirit just creating things that weren't there before. It seems like there, there's a lot of that in, uh, in fashion as well. Yes. Yes. Um, just unlimited creativity, so to speak. There is, there is. How did you come back to that world? What drove you back there? And and how did you think about, I'm going to go create, create something new? So after two and a half years, I had a lot of ideas stored up a lot, a lot of energy (laughs) for doing adult stuff after all the baby time. And I thought I didn't want to work for somebody. I wanted to create something on my own. And I thought, what do I love and what's missing in the market? And I love Cherry Creek. I've lived there for five years and I wanted to create something sort of based around here because I kind of don't want to leave the area. (laughs) So I definitely knew I wanted to do something in fashion, something with writing, photography. And there was no like fashion magazine in Cherry Creek. There was like loads of lifestyle, loads of restaurant stuff. But there was nothing based on fashion. So I thought, why not? And I'm going to do something um, online, only digital, because everything was being printed. And I thought, why not just start it? And you started Cherry Creek Fashion? I started Cherry Creek Fashion at cherrycreekfashion.com, which has now grown like beyond Cherry Creek. Like Cherry Creek is a very good brand name. It's like the Beverly Hills of the West, (laughs) it's called the Midwest. So it's a good brand name. But now I've sort of expanded the coverage into other areas of Denver and Colorado. And how's it been received? Very, very well. And starting in Cherry Creek, like, there's a huge, huge community here. And in Denver, like the possibilities are endless. I know I could not do that in New York, probably couldn't even do it in London. But in Denver, there is a hunger for something new. There is a hunger for something homegrown and for something that focuses on communities. So I always try to feature like the people behind the stores, like who's doing what, like the people in the community, the local people who people may not know their name. So it's very nice to sort of like tell those different stories. Why do you say you couldn't do it in London or New York? 
Because there's so much content there. Do you know what I mean? Like there's so much there. And Denver is still a new market for fashion. It's still open. So there is a hunger for it. I mean, like most times I contact people on Instagram, like all the big names here. I go, oh, I'd love you to do my magazine. Like this TV star, I remember Erica Cobb, she's huge on a national TV show here. And I just Instagrammed her. And then she was on my cover. In New York, I'll probably be blocked. <laughs> <laughs> I do that to some TV host or something. So people are, are really open here to meeting with you, being featured, being interviewed, like giving you advice. You just ask for it. So it's just, it's sort of, it is like the wild west. It is an environment where you can create something and make it happen. And I think for a lot of people taking that initial leap can be the scariest thing. It yeah. seems like that's, uh, at least you, you're making it sound like that's the easy part for you. <laughs> it is the easy part for me. Like I've never been scared of like taking that leap or starting something new. I always think once I have it written down in my notebook, it can be done. Yeah. <laughs> so I always kind of carry that childlike attitude with me to starting new projects. So how did you start Cherry Creek Fashion? How did you go about it initially? Well, because of my like St. Lucian background, I know that it's very important to know the right people. It gets you really far. Knowing people in the community and getting like your boots on the ground, it, it, this is what works for like a community-based magazine. So I made a list of people I wanted to meet here, the organizations like the Cherry Creek North Bid, the Cherry Creek Chamber of Commerce, different store owners, other magazine editors. And I made that list and I just went down the list and contacted all of them and had loads and loads of coffees <laughs> <laughs> at Aviano. Shout out to Aviano, my second office. I love but it there. I, I love it. And I just met a lot of people. And even before the magazine launched, there was an awareness of my product in the market because I had like spoken to so many people. And initially, as you were explaining this, people were supportive and they, they helped you get started? They were. Some people were confused at the online-only concept. I think in bigger cities, people are so used to it. But here, they were like, where can I pick it up? You know, can I buy it at Barnes & Noble? Can I pick it up at a boutique? And I'm like, no, no, it's just online. It's on your phone. You're on your computer. So that was the kind of first hurdle I had because people here are still very old-fashioned. They're used to getting all their magazines in the mailbox every month. But they, they understood it. And I, people really love like kind of going back to it on their phones. And business people really love it because like if we search you, for instance, like your, your very cool pictures come up <laughs> from the magazine, <laughs> men's issue. But it's, it's always there as a reference so people can find out more about the business just by going online. So I find I have readers from like China, Japan, Russia, Australia, because it's all online. They're searching about Cherry Creek, about Denver, and they find it. So it has really worked out for me. It's interesting because it, it uh, I think, calls in a question, like, what is a magazine to a certain extent, right? Exactly. I know, I know. I, so I kind of changed the concept a bit because I put in, like, video content as well and just, like, make it sort of very different and very interactive and very forward-thinking, which I think is the way most magazines are going because we have a lot of print magazines shutting down now and they're going like online only because yeah. that is how everybody's digesting information now. Yeah, so much less overhead. Exactly. It's very cheap. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like printing costs are ridiculous. So yeah. I'm not even touching that. Yeah. That's perfect. Yeah. And it's uh, a one, one woman show at the moment? It is with a lot of freelancers and a lot of help. Yeah. So I do a lot of collaborations. Like my beauty editor is Amy Dickinson from Live Love Lash and Hydrate Bar. So she gets all my beauty stuff done. 
I have like columnist Stephanie Jones, who's like very well known in the TV world. She writes for me. Uh, Kiri Morgan, who's a stylist. Um, my very good friend, Annie Blosh, does a lot of my cover interviews. Uh, so I have a lot of collaborators who really love the product and really want to work with me. It's so cool because we, especially now, but certainly it's becoming a trend The starting companies in a really decentralized way with a lot of part-time help, people with skill exactly. sets in other areas. I think it's a, it's a great way to build an organization. Exactly. And you keep your overheads down. There's, you know, I have my home office over there. There's no need to get a building. There's no need to get like an assistant or staff especially since I'm used to doing everything myself. Like St. Lucia was a really good training ground. So I build a website myself. I love photography. So I do a lot of photography myself and it keeps the overhead low. And, you know, I just get things done really quickly. It feels like fashion can be a very tangible thing to people. How has the, the coronavirus quarantining, how has that affected the growth of the magazine and, and your creation of content? So readership is up. I have created less content because we couldn't do our large photo shoots that we normally do at different properties around here. Advertising is down which is to be expected, but people wanted content and people wanted non-COVID related content, which I learned really early on. Like a lot of magazines were producing covers with people with masks on and how do you survive Corona? And I just thought, I don't want to read about it anymore. I don't want to pick up Vogue and see somebody, a model with a mask. I want fantasy. I want to escape this virus. I want to read something else. So I just continued like producing my, my content. And people are loving it. People are loving. People are reading. People are saying, oh, thank you so much for not writing about coronavirus. <laughs> which is great. <laughs> people sitting in their sweats wishing they could be... Exactly. Uh, dressed up, dressed which up. is nice. That's great. Yeah. And your Cherry Creek fashion has led to a new venture. Is that right? Yes, it has. So because my advertising went down, I really want to kind of keep the revenue going. I decided to launch something called Cherry Creek Studios. And it's kind of going back to my background of like production. So I'm doing like photography videos and like content creation for other companies. So it's just like a natural extension of what I do now, but now doing it for other companies. And is that fashion related or not necessarily? Not necessarily, but the, because of my fashion background, I sort of bring a more stylized angle to like a normal business venture. Very cool. Yeah. Are you doing that with folks who are supporting uh, the magazine or, or just sort Not of? Not necessarily. Okay. So like my first client um, who was a good guest for you is Carmen, who owns A-Line. So I just shot all her marketing materials for her new book, Learning to Fly. And I got a preview copy of the book and it is the most fascinating thing like ever. So I did her photos and a video and she's using that for the marketing for her book. That's so cool. Yeah. How do you choose sort of who you go after for your services or or who you're going to have on the magazine? I know you've got your your master list of everyone you want to meet, <laughs> I know, but, I know. but there, there's also just a lot of interesting sort of thematic things that you weave in. How do you, yeah. how do you decide on that? So every month, like each, each issue has a theme. So like I'm working on August now, which is the beauty issue. And I sort of always keep my boots on the ground, keep my air around to see like who's interesting, what's going on. I always make my little notes after I have meetings of who did they talk about? You know, who can I meet? And then I sort of make the issue around that theme. So for beauty, of course, we have like makeup and stuff. We're also talking about like the beauty of community, the beauty of activism, beauty from inside out. And just I just expand on that. And for my clients, for the other company, it's really organic because people started asking me for these services first. Oh, can you do this? I'm like, oh, well, I should start a business <laughs> doing this. So it's people who 
are featured in the magazine, who used to be clients of the magazine, who already know what I do that have been asking for the services. That's great. Yeah. You mentioned activism. I think, you know, there's so much going on right now in terms yes. of social justice, in terms of talking about what it's like for, for the African-American community in the U.S. Yeah. And, and other minority communities. And uh, you had a fascinating interview in 303 Magazine mm-hmm. about uh, your experience being a black woman in, yeah. um, in Denver. Has that impacted the way that you think about your magazine, the way that you think about your business at all? For sure. So I always try to be, I call my magazine like an inclusive magazine. I hear the word like diverse. It's like, oh, let's just be inclusive. So I try to have voices from all different backgrounds, all different colors. You'll open it, you'll see, you know, black, white, whatever. Yeah, I just try to be more inclusive because as a black woman, I am more aware of it. And can let's just go back a bit. When I first moved here, moving here as an immigrant is very shocking. <laughs> Because I grew up in the Caribbean where we're all mixed up, majority black. You just wake up being yourself. And then New York was fine because it's all mixed up. Huge Caribbean community here, San Francisco, fine. But you get to Colorado, which is whiter than white. Moved to Cherry Creek. I used to go sometimes a couple of weeks without seeing another black or brown person, (laughs) which is shocking. So it's just like a shock to the system. And also you take a while to realize that people are racist because... I'm a very friendly person. And at first I would just think, oh, this person's having a bad day. But when you're horrible to me and then nice to the person behind me and in front of me, who just happened to be white, like let's spot the difference here. Then you realize, oh my God, it's really racist. So I took a while, like adjusting to that environment. I remember when we first moved into our house next door, like people would stop at the side of the road and stare at me, like opening my door. Wow. And I'm like, oh my God, I'm not breaking in. This is, here are my keys. This, um, you know what I mean? Or people will live around here talking to me like I don't speak English. I used to get that a lot. <laughs> I'm like, why are you talking so slow? I have a master's degree in English <laughs> from a British university so I can speak and write in American and British English. So my English is okay. <laughs> but they speak to you in that sort of... Like you're a six-year-old, really slowly and deliberately using tiny words. And it I really fell down about it for a while. And I had to actually like talk to myself and say, well, it's not my problem. It's their problem. So now I ignore it or I confront it. I remember somebody asking me if I was a nanny to my child that I gave birth to. Wow. Because he's a little bit lighter than me. I know he looked white when he was young. But, but you don't assume things. You know, you don't assume things because of the color of people's skin. And you mentioned... That being a shock when you came to Colorado. Yes. Is that a different experience from your experience in San Francisco or, or New York? Very or much so. Because London is, I mean, I never even thought about race in London. Like there is, of course, like the hidden racial problem in London. But when I was there, you're in the middle of a city, you sit on a train, the tube, and you hear literally 20 languages like right next to you because it's such a diverse city. So you never even think of that. New York is diverse. San Francisco is diverse. But Colorado is getting more diverse, especially since people have moved from the coast, but less so five years ago. So it's just really, really shocking how racist people are. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I think, one of the most important things about the conversations that are going on right now is mm. just um, driving awareness. Exactly. You know, I exactly. think if you're if you're a white person, it's easy to just not not even consciously, but just unconsciously be ignorant of of these things going yeah. on. I know myself, there's been a lot of learning about 
know, the lived experience of, of millions of other Americans that you yes. just, you don't have reason to be aware of unless it's uh, put in front of you. Exactly. Well, you have a great teacher, your fiance, <laughs> who I'm obsessed with. I have a girl crush on her. Don't tell her. <laughs> but she is so aware. She's a great ally. We speak a lot about it. She knows what's going on because she's interested in other people's stories. So... You have a great teacher. I do. I do. Tell I've, you everything. I've, I've, <laughs> I've certainly uh, learned a lot, but yeah. I think it's it's really it seems like the movement right now can do so much in terms of opening minds and opening hearts exactly. and just uh, and making that making that awareness. Yeah, it feels different now because when we had like other deaths before, you would look at the protests and it was generally only black people, or brown people, maybe one or two white allies. Now, the younger generation is really, really involved and active in fighting for justice. So I think now there is like less of a tolerance for like companies, individuals getting away with racist acts. And you can see that with people calling out how many black people are on your board, how what's your your people of color percentage in your company? Like people are calling it out now. And people are getting afraid to be racist, which is great. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like some minds you can't change and I'm, I'm not worried about that. But if it helps for them not to be openly racist towards me, that makes my life much, much better, Yeah, which is great. Well, I think what it means to be racist, I think like the terminology is shifting as well a little exactly. bit, right? Where, you know, they're there might be people out there that would say, oh, I'm not racist, right? Like yeah. the, the person who assumed you were a, a, a nanny to your child, yes, right? Yes, of course. Because she's like, oh my person, gosh, you look so fashionable to be a nanny. And I was so shocked. I didn't even answer her. I, yeah. I didn't know what to say. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that, that's shocking, right? Yeah, but, but she wouldn't think that she was she, racist. Exactly. But her her bias led her to assume uh, assume something about you. Exactly. exactly. Um, and it caused you to be unfairly profiled yeah. and insulted. Yeah. Have you found that in your business career? Has it affected you at all? So when I first started, I was actually a little hesitant and worried about walking into a meeting and it's tall black woman with an afro shows up in Cherry <laughs> Creek. I didn't know what to expect. And I was worried about in the beginning thinking, I'm going to show up for a meeting. I hope they don't just cancel my ideas. I don't want to work with me because of the color of my skin. And I found myself doing that over and over again. I had to say, well, I kind of have to stop that because you go into the meeting, not your confident, proud self. You go in with your shoulders crunched and that yeah. does affect how they see you. So it's kind of like a self-fulfilling prophecy. They may not be thinking about your race, but because of the way you're coming across is not confident because you're thinking about your race, that may affect your business dealings with them. And when I kind of just, you know, I put that aside and thought, I'm not going to think about it anymore. It's not my problem. Walk in there. I kind of just took off. That's great. There's that yeah. that inner narrative that's kind of been guiding you throughout your career, exactly. it seems like. Exactly. Yeah. And now, like, I don't care. Like, you want to give me an attitude because I'm going to color my skin? I'll probably ignore you or give you an attitude back. Like, you know. I don't care anymore because it's not my problem. It's the racist problem. It's not mine. Yeah. Yeah. So do you feel that, I mean, there's a, there's a lot of talk about systemic institutional racism. Yeah. Do you ever feel like you've been on the wrong side of that? I'm lucky because I am an immigrant and also I have never sort of like worked in organization here. I think if I did that, I would get a little, especially how I look with my Afro, <laughs> probably be asked to straighten my hair or something. But I have been been really, really lucky in this community. So once people got to know me, it has been fine. And also a lot of things I do not notice as well because I haven't grown up in this environment. And I always think, I don't know how Black people achieve anything in America. Like, I would feel so oppressed and so bogged down by it if I grew up with it that I 
don't know if I could achieve anything. Does that make sense? Like, I don't know how you get up every day, especially like black boys thinking that I am less than and the people tell you that every time in all little ways. But I have gotten a lot of like microaggressions, like the nanny thing, the staring from across the street. And one thing I always get is like, where do you live? Cherry Creek. (gasps) Gasp. Um, Are you renting an apartment? No, I actually own a home. Do you know what I mean? It's like little things like that. And they don't think they're racist, but they just assume that, well, first of all, how can she afford to live in Cherry Creek? And then she must be living in a tiny apartment somewhere that she's renting. So just like little digs like that that you get. Yeah. Yeah. And have you felt that shift at all in the last, what, month or two? That well, people been... are way more polite. Yeah. <laughs> people have been way more polite, which is fantastic. I'm getting lots of mams, a lot of nervous mams. <laughs> <laughs> I think they're just trying to be super, super polite and everything else. But I have felt that shift and it's just been more aware. And like my white friends are talking about it more, which they never really spoke about or maybe even understood before. And it's just like all over, like I'm on different like boards. And we're talking about that now. Can we get more black people on these boards? How do we support more black artists? So it's just having a conversation and being forced to make the changes now because everybody is looking at you and asking you, what are you doing? Where are the black people? Where are the brown people in your company? Which is great. Yeah. This kind of dovetails to something that you mentioned earlier, but how do you think about that diversity, inclusivity affecting the work product and economics of a company. You know, you mentioned in- inclusivity being really important to yeah. your magazine here. It's a very white community. Yeah. How does that make you stronger nonetheless in creating a, a strong product? Because the thing is, when you have more diverse stories, more people are attracted to reading your magazine. I've gotten a lot of comments from black and brown people telling me, oh, I didn't think Cherry Creek was for me. I I didn't think, but now I'm seeing these faces in your magazine. I come here and I spend money because I feel more welcome there. And when I look around, you know, when I first moved here, I didn't see a black person for two weeks, but now... I see them at Aviano. I see them walking into boutiques and it makes me feel really, really good. And I'm seeing more black people in advertising now in Cherry Creek, which when I first moved here, that was never done. So it's just people being more aware and making those changes to make black and brown people feel more, more kind of included in the community here. Yeah, it's mm. great. I think yeah. It- and it's good for your bottom line. We have money to spend. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like when, when you tell people sometimes, let's say somebody who works in housing, you tell them, how are you going to attract more black people? And they start talking about, well, we'll have subsidized housing. And I am always thinking being inclusive and diverse doesn't mean handouts. Yeah. You know, black people have money to spend. Just treat them like you, you would anybody else. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. And were these things that you were thinking about when you guys were looking at making the move here from San Francisco? Okay. So my husband got recruited by a company here to move here. And I knew nothing about Colorado before. Absolutely nothing. When you live on the coast, New York, San Francisco, you don't even think of the Midwest. You're like, eh, they're mountains and cowboys. So he came home and he said, honey, honey, I got this opportunity. What do you think? Let's think about it. So I thought, what is in Colorado? And the first thing I asked him is, are there black people there? (laughs) Serious question. And he was so proud of himself. He said, the mayor's black. (laughs) And I thought, "Mm, okay. And then my second question was like, is there fashion there? And he said, well, I don't know, but we can go visit and we can go find out. And we came to visit and it was just really, really nice. People were friendly. People were dressed up here. 
It just felt like home here. And now you've become uh, an important part of the community. Yeah, I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> I try to contribute any way I can. So it has been fun. And in terms of, you know, driving that inclusivity and that diversity, what's your advice for, for other black and brown entrepreneurs or, or people who aspire to doing what you're doing in maybe communities that aren't particularly diverse at first? Yeah, I would say just go for it, like show people who you are and sort of stick to what you believe in and stick to what you want to do. Because, you know, I'm sure some people around here weren't that welcoming to me, but now I've done it for over a year. It's like, oh, okay, well, we know what she's about now. So just sort of stick to what you're doing and reach out to people and you'd be surprised how much support there actually is. Like, they're not going to come find you. You have to go find them, reach out to people, white, brown, black in your community, and just tell them what you want to do and see if there are ways to collaborate. Collaboration has been fantastic for me because if you don't know me, well, you know the person I'm working with. So, okay, then you trust their judgment about me. And then now you want to work with me. So just look for people you can collaborate with, reach out to people, hit me up on Instagram, you know, yeah, yeah just reach out. That's great. Yeah. In terms of what the future looks like, what you're doing with your, with your platforms, where do you think you can go with it? So I just want to expand it and even be more inclusive because there's always, always more work to do and just have like even more voices from Denver, from the rest of Colorado in the magazine and just continue to make it bigger and better and then build the production side of my business as well. Very cool. Yeah. What kind of themes do we have for upcoming months to look forward to? August is beauty. And then September is the fall fashion issue, the September issue, which is the most important issue in the world. (laughs) (laughs) It's going to be packed with like fall fashion stuff. October is the men's issue. And the last year you were in the men's issue. What else? Yeah, that's what's coming up. That's great. Yeah. I guess the last question that, that I'd love to chat about is, I'm just struck by how it seems like that positive mindset of yours continues to to drive you forward. And I think that's something that a lot of people can really struggle with, especially, you know, taking an entrepreneurial path, doing things on your own. Do you have any practices that you use to just cement that mindset and bring that on a regular basis? So sometimes I use mantras. Like my new mantra now is um, the song Formation by Beyonce. (laughs) It sounds really silly. But she speaks about, I dream it, I work hard, I grind till I own it. So, you know, you dream it. And if you work hard enough, you will achieve that dream or some version of that. Or you know that, okay, now I need to change course. But if you just dream it and do nothing about it, nothing's going to happen. So I use that a lot, mantras, just reminding myself of what I'm good at. Because we all have these times where we feel like, oh my God, can I do this? Oh my God, I don't know if I'm good enough. Like this interview this morning, I'm like, he had so many great guests on. What am I going to talk about? (laughs) But you just constantly remind yourself that you can do it. And you kind of surround yourself with um, people who believe in you as well. Because when you're down, you call a friend and they'll be like, no, you can you can do it. Remember when you did that thing? So you just kind of surround yourself with people who support you and just remind yourself of who you are constantly. And just try to have a positive mindset because you can achieve it. You may have to grind a lot like Beyonce, but you can achieve it. How do you think about imparting that mindset to your son? I always tell him that the possibilities are endless. You know, you can do something. He's like, no, mommy, I can't do it. Like, no, no, you try it first before you say you can do it. And then you realize what you're capable of. Yeah. Yeah. And when you think about that mindset applied to sort of the racial dynamics in our country and and potentially being 
a high name, Paul, because of the color of your skin. How do you think about either either your son or just young people in general mm-hmm. right now that are that are black and brown and thinking about being disadvantaged because of things that they just can't control? What's what's your advice for for approaching that that sort of mindset? I would say look at the facts now, look at the environment now. Like four months ago, did you think we'd be here? Did you think we'd have these people resigning because they were racist or these companies adding black people to their boards or making the pledge to like 15% pledge, making sure that they have black goods on their shelves. We didn't expect this three months ago. So look at what can happen in such a short time when young people push and they get to the streets and they call their reps, you know what I mean? So a lot can happen. So just look at that and feel hopeful because change is happening and it is coming. And when they're adults, it will be different. I'm not saying that everything will be great and there'll be no more racism because we still have racists alive today. (laughs) But things have changed rapidly. So hold on to that hope and keep pushing, knowing that the possibilities are endless for you. And just go out there and do it. You can be the first black person to do something. Like, just do it. So cool. Yeah. It's really, really powerful. As we wrap up here, anything that you'd like to promote or share about uh, what you've got going on? Just follow my magazine. You can subscribe, cherrycreekfashion.com. It's free. Just give me your email. <laughs> That's all. You can follow us on Instagram as well. And on Instagram. Yeah. Awesome. And you can go uh, go back a ways and see me in the men's Exactly. <laughs> Posing up a storm. <laughs> that was really cool, by the way. <laughs> Awesome. Yeah, thank you so much. This was so much fun. Thank you, Esther. This thank was great. You. Really appreciate so the time. Bye. Signing off. Bye-bye. Hi, it's Michael again. Thanks for listening to this installment of What Didn't Kill You. If you like what you heard, I encourage you to share with friends, subscribe, and review. You can continue the conversation and share your own stories of what didn't kill you at whatdidn'tkillyou.com. And you can follow along at what didn't kill you on Instagram. I wish you great fortune, growth, and clarity as you navigate your own path, and I hope today's conversation may have contributed in some small way. See you next time.